0: Chapter Two Part One of South This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. South The Story of Shackleton's Last Expedition, nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventeen, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Two Part One New Land. The first day of the new year, January first, 1915, was cloudy with a gentle northerly breeze and occasional snow-squalls. The condition of the pack improved in the evening, and after 8 p.m. we forged ahead rapidly through the brittle young ice, easily broken by the ship. A few hours later a moderate gale came up from the east with continuous snow. After 4 a.m. on the 2nd we got into thick old pack-ice, showing signs of heavy pressure it was much hummocked but large areas of open water and long leads to the south-west continued until noon the position then was latitude sixty-nine degrees forty-nine minutes south longitude fifteen degrees forty-two minutes west and the run for the twenty-four hours had been one hundred and twenty-four miles south three degrees west this was cheering The heavy pack blocked the way south after midday. It would have been almost impossible to have pushed the ship into the ice, and in any case the gale would have made such a proceeding highly dangerous. So we dodged along to the west and north, looking for a suitable opening towards the south. The good run had given me hope of sighting the land on the following day, and the delay was annoying." I was growing anxious to reach land on account of the dogs, which had not been able to get exercise for four weeks, and were becoming run down. We passed at least two hundred bergs during the day, and we noticed also large masses of hummocky bay ice and ice-foot. One flow of bay ice had black earth upon it, apparently balsatic in origin, and there was a large berg with a broad band of yellowish-brown right through it. The stain may have been volcanic dust." many of the bergs had quaint shapes there was one that exactly resembled a large two-funnelled liner complete in silhouette except for smoke later in the day we found an opening in the pack and made 9 miles to the southwest but at 2 a.m. on january 3rd the lead ended in hummocky ice impossible to penetrate a moderate easterly gale had come up with snow squalls and we could not get a clear view in any direction The hummocky ice did not offer suitable anchorage for the ship, and we were compelled to dodge up and down for ten hours before we were able to make fast to a small floe under the lee of a berg 120 feet high. The berg broke the wind and saved us, drifting fast to leeward. The position was latitude 69 degrees, 59 minutes south, longitude 17 degrees, 31 minutes west. We made a move again at 7 p.m., when we took in the ice-anchor and proceeded south, and at 10 p.m. we passed a small berg that the ship had nearly touched twelve hours previously. Obviously we were not making much headway. Several of the bergs passed during this day were of solid blue ice, indicating true glacier origin. By midnight of the third we had made eleven miles to the south, and then came to a full stop in weather so thick with snow that we could not learn if the leads and lanes were worth entering. The ice was hummocky, but fortunately the gale was decreasing, and after we had scanned all the leads and pools, within our reach we turned back to the northeast. Two sperm and two large blue whales were sighted, the first we had seen for 260 miles. We also saw petrels, numerous adelies, emperors, crab-eaters, and sea-leopards. The clearer weather of the morning showed us that the pack was solid and impassable from the southeast to the south west, and at ten AM on the fourth we again passed within five yards of the small berg that we had passed twice on the previous day. We had been steaming and dodging about for over an area of twenty square miles for fifty hours, trying to find an opening to the south, southeast or south west, but all the leads ran north, northeast or northwest it was as though the spirits of the antarctic were pointing us to the backward track the track we were determined not to follow our desire was to make easting as well as southing so as to reach the land if possible east of ross's furthest south and well east of Coates land this was more important as the prevailing winds appeared to be easterly and every mile of easting would count In the afternoon we went west in some open water, and by 4 p.m. we were making west-southwest, with more water opening up ahead. The sun was shining brightly, over three degrees high at midnight, and we were able to maintain this direction in fine weather till the following noon. The position, then, was latitude 70 degrees, 28 minutes south, longitude 20 degrees, 16 minutes west and the run had been sixty-two miles south, sixty-two degrees west. At eight a.m. there had been open water from north, round by west to southwest, but impenetrable pack to the south and east. At three p.m. the way to the southwest and west-northwest was absolutely blocked, and as we experienced a set to the west, I did not feel justified in burning more of the reduced stock of coal to go west or north. I took the ship back over our course for four miles, to a point where some looser pack gave faint promise of a way through. But after battling for three hours with very heavy hummocked ice, and making four miles to the south, we were brought up by the huge blocks and floes of very old pack. Further effort seemed useless at that time, and I gave the order to bank fires after we had moored the endurance to a solid floe. The weather was clear— and some enthusiastic football players had a game on the floe until about midnight. Worsley dropped through a hole in rotten ice while retrieving the ball. He had to be retrieved himself. Solid Pack still barred the way to the south on the following morning, January 6th. There was some open water north of the floe, but as the day was calm and I did not wish to use coal in a possibly vain search for an opening to the southward, I kept the ship moored to the floe. This pause, in good weather, gave an opportunity to exercise the dogs, which were taken on to the floe by the men in charge of them. The excitement of the animals was intense. Several managed to get into the water, and the muzzles they were wearing did not prevent some hot fights. Two dogs, which had contrived to slip their muzzles, fought themselves into an icy pool, and were hauled out still locked in a grapple. However, men and dogs enjoyed the exercise. A sounding gave a depth of two thousand four hundred fathoms, with a blue mud bottom. The wind freshened from the west early in the morning, and we started to skirt the northern edge of the solid pack in an easterly direction under the sail. We had cleared the close pack by noon, but the outlook to the south gave small promise of useful progress, and I was anxious now to make easting. We went northeast under sail." and after making thirty-nine miles, passed a peculiar berg that we had been abreast of sixty hours earlier. Killer whales were becoming active around us, and I had to exercise caution in allowing anyone to leave the ship. These beasts have a habit of locating a resting seal by looking over the edge of a floe, and then striking through the ice from below in search of a meal. They would not distinguish between seal and man. The noon position on January 8th was latitude 70 degrees, zero minutes south, longitude 19 degrees, nine minutes west. We had made 66 miles in a northeasterly direction during the preceding twenty-four hours. The course during the afternoon was east-southeast, through loose pack and open water, with deep, hummocky flows to the south. Several leads to the south came in view but we held on the easterly course. The floes were becoming looser, and there were indications of open water ahead. The ship passed not fewer than five hundred bergs that day, some of them very large. A dark water-sky extended from east to south-southeast on the following morning, and the insurance, working through loose pack at half-speed, reached open water just before noon." A rampart berg one hundred and fifty feet high, and a quarter of a mile long, lay at the edge of the loose pack, and we sailed over a projecting foot of this berg into rolling ocean, stretching to the horizon. The sea extended from a little to the west of south, round by east to north-northeast, and its welcome promise was supported by a deep water-sky to the south. I laid a course south by east in an endeavour to get south and east of Ross's furthest south. Latitude 71 degrees, 30 minutes south. We kept the open water for a hundred miles, passing many bergs, but encountering no pack. Two very large whales, probably blue whales, came up close to the ship, and we saw spouts in all directions. Open water, inside the pack, in that latitude, might have the appeal of sanctuary to the whales which are harried by man further north. The run southward in blue water, with a path cleared ahead and the miles falling away behind us, was a joyful experience after the long struggle through the ice-lanes. But, like other good things, our spell of free movement had to end. The endurance encountered the ice again at 1 a.m. on the 10th. Loose pack stretched to east and south, with open water to the west and a good water-sky. It consisted partly of heavy, hummocky ice, showing evidence of great pressure, but contained also many thick, flat floes, evidently formed in some sheltered bay, and never subjected to pressure or to much motion. The swirl of the ship's wash brought diatomaceous scum from the sides of this ice. The water became thick with diatoms at 9 a.m., and I ordered a cast to be made." no bottom was found at two hundred and ten fathoms the endurance continued to advance southward through loose pack that morning we saw the spouts of numerous whales and noticed some hundreds of crab-eaters lying on the floes white rumped terns antarctic petrels and snow petrels were numerous and there was a colony of adelies on a low berg a few killer whales with their characteristic high dorsal fin also came in view the noon position was latitude seventy two degrees two minutes south longitude sixteen degrees seven minutes west and the run for the twenty four hours had been one hundred and thirty six miles south six degrees east we were now in the vicinity of the land discovered by dr w s bruce leader of the scotia expedition in nineteen o four and named by him coates land Dr. Bruce encountered an ice-barrier in latitude 72 degrees, 18 minutes south, longitude 10 degrees west, stretching from the northeast to southwest. He followed the barrier edge to the southwest for 150 miles, and reached latitude 74 degrees, 1 minute south, longitude, 22 degrees west. He saw no naked rock, but his description of rising slopes of snow and ice, with shoaling water off the barrier wall, indicated clearly the presence of land. It was up those slopes, at a point as far south as possible, that I planned to begin the march across the Antarctic continent. All hands were watching now for the coast described by Dr. Bruce, and at 5 p.m. the lookout reported an appearance of land to the south-southeast. We could see a gentle snow-slope rising to a height of about 1,000 feet— it seemed to be an island or a peninsula with the sound on its south side, and the position of its most northerly point was about seventy two degrees thirty four minutes south, sixteen degrees forty minutes west. The Endurance was passing through heavy, loose pack, and shortly before midnight she broke into a lead of open sea along a barrier edge. A sounding within one cable's length of the barrier edge gave no bottom with 210 fathoms of line. The barrier was 70 feet high, with cliffs of about 40 feet. The Scotia must have passed this point when pushing to Bruce's farthest south on March sixth, nineteen 1904, and I knew from the narrative of that voyage, as well as from our own observation, that the coast trended away to the southwest. The lead of open water continued along the barrier edge, and we pushed forward without delay. An easterly breeze brought clouds and falls of snow during the morning of January 11th. The barrier trended south-west by south, and we skirted it for fifty miles until eleven a.m. The cliffs in the morning were twenty feet high, and by noon they had increased to one hundred and ten and one hundred and fifteen feet. The brow apparently rose twenty to thirty feet higher. We were forced away from the barrier once for three hours by a line of very heavy pack-ice. Otherwise there is open water along the edge, with high loose pack to the west and northwest. We noticed a seal bobbing up and down in an apparent effort to swallow a long, silvery fish that projected at least eighteen inches from its mouth. The noon position was latitude seventy-three degrees, thirteen minutes south, longitude twenty degrees, forty-three minutes west, and a sounding then gave one hundred and fifty-five fathoms at a distance of a mile from the barrier. The bottom consisted of large igneous pebbles. The weather then became thick, and I held away to the westward, where the sky had given indications of open water, until seven p.m., when we laid the ship alongside in a floe in loose pack. Heavy snow was falling, and I was anxious lest the westerly wind should bring the pack hard against the coast and jam the ship. The Nimrod had a narrow escape from a misadventure of this kind in the Ross Sea, early in 1908. We made a start again at 5 a.m. the next morning, January 12th, in overcast weather, with mist and snow showers, and four hours later, broke through loose pack-ice into open water. The view was obscured, but we proceeded to the southeast, and had gained twenty-four miles by noon, when three soundings in latitude seventy-four degrees four minutes south, longitude twenty-two degrees forty-eight minutes west, gave ninety-five, one hundred and twenty-eight, and one hundred and three fathoms, with a bottom of sand, pebbles, and mud. Clark got a good haul of biological specimens in the dredge. The insurance was now close to what appeared to be the barrier, with a heavy pack-ice foot containing numerous bergs frozen in and possibly aground. The solid ice turned away towards the northwest, and we followed the ice for forty-eight miles north, sixty degrees west, to clear it. Now we were beyond the point, reached by the Scotia, and the land underlying the ice sheet we were skirting was new the northerly trend was unexpected and i began to suspect that we were really rounding a huge ice tongue attached to the true barrier edge and extending northward events confirmed this suspicion we skirted the pack all night steering northwest then west by north till 4 a.m. and round to the southwest The course at 8 a.m. on the 13th was south-southwest. The barrier at midnight was low and distant, and at 8 a.m. there was merely a narrow ice-foot, about 200 yards across, separating it from the open water. By noon there was only an occasional shelf of ice-foot. The barrier in one place came with an easy sweep to the sea. We could have landed stores there without difficulty— we made the sounding four hundred feet off the barrier, but got no bottom at six hundred and seventy-six fathoms. At four p.m., still following the barrier to the southwest, we reached a corner and found it receding abruptly to the southeast. Our wake was blocked by very heavy pack, and after spending two hours in vain searching for an opening, we moored the endurance to a floe and banked fires. During that day we passed two schools of seals, swimming fast to the northwest and north-northeast. The animals swam in close order, rising and blowing like porpoises, and we wondered if there was any significance in their journey northward at that time of the year. Several young emperor penguins had been captured and brought aboard on the previous day. Two of them were still alive when the insurance was brought along the ice floe. They promptly hopped onto the ice, turned round, bowed gracefully three times, and retired to the far side of the floe. There is something curiously human about the manners and movements of these birds. I was concerned about the dogs; they were losing condition, and some of them appeared to be ailing. One dog had to be shot on the twelfth. We did not move the ship on the fourteenth. A breeze came from the east in the evening and under its influence the pack began to work offshore. Before midnight the close ice that had barred our way had opened and left a lane along the foot of the barrier. I decided to wait for the morning, not wishing to risk getting caught between the barrier and the pack in the event of the wind changing. A sounding gave 1,357 fathoms with a bottom of glacial mud. The noon observation showed the position to be latitude 74 degrees, 9 minutes south, longitude 27 degrees, 16 minutes west. We cast off at 6 a.m. on the 15th in hazy weather with a northeasterly breeze, and proceeded along the barrier in open water. The course was southeast for 16 miles, then south-southeast. We now had solid pack to windward, and at 3 p.m., we passed a bight, probably ten miles deep, and running to the northeast. A similar bight appeared at six p.m. These deep cuts strengthened the impression we had already formed that for several days we had been rounding a great mass of ice, at least fifty miles across, stretching out from the coast and possibly destined to float away at some time in the future. The soundings, roughly two hundred fathoms, at the landward side, and 1,300 fathoms at the seaward side, suggested that this mighty projection was afloat. Seals were plentiful. We saw large numbers on the pack, and several on low parts of the barrier, where the slope was easy. The ship passed through large schools of seals, swimming from the barrier to the pack offshore. The animals were splashing and blowing around the endurance, and Hurley made a record of this unusual sight, with a kinematograph camera. The barrier now stretched to the southwest again. Sail was set to a fresh easterly breeze, but at 7 p.m. it had to be furled, the endurance being held up by pack-ice against the barrier for an hour. We took advantage of the pause to sound and got 268 fathoms with glacial mud and pebbles. Then a small lane appeared ahead. We pushed through at full speed, and by 8.30 p.m. the insurance was moving southward, with sails set in a fine expanse of open water. We continued to skirt the barrier in clear weather. I was watching for possible landing-places, though, as a matter of fact, I had no intention of landing north of Vashel Bay, in loot land, except under pressure of necessity. Every mile gained towards the south meant a mile less sledging, when the time came for the overland journey. Shortly before midnight on the 15th, we came abreast of the northern edge of a great glacier or overflow from the inland ice, projecting beyond the barrier into the sea. It was four hundred or five hundred feet high, and at its edge was a large mass of thick bay ice. The bay formed by the northern edge of this glacier would have made an excellent landing-place, a flat ice-foot, Nearly three feet above sea level, looked like a natural quay. From this ice foot a snow slope rose to the top of the barrier. The bay was protected from the southeasterly wind and was open only to the northerly wind, which is rare in those latitudes. A sounding gave eighty fathoms, indicating that the glacier was aground. I named the place Glacier Bay, and had reason later to remember it with regret. The endurance steamed along the front of this ice floe for about seventeen miles. The glacier showed huge crevices and high-pressure ridges, and appeared to run back to ice-covered slopes or hills one thousand or two thousand feet high. Some bays in its front were filled with smooth ice, dotted with seals and penguins. At four a.m. on the sixteenth we reached the edge of another huge glacial overflow from the ice-sheet. The ice appeared to be coming over low hills and was heavily broken. The cliff face was 250 to 350 feet high, and the ice surface two miles inland was probably 2,000 feet high. The cliff front showed a tide mark of about six feet, proving that it was not afloat. We steamed along the front of this tremendous glacier for 40 miles, and then, at 8.30 a.m., we were held up by solid pack-ice, which appeared to be held by stranded bergs. The depth, two cables off the barrier cliff, was 134 fathoms. No further advance was possible that day, but the noon observation, which gave the position as latitude seventy-six twenty-seven minutes south, longitude 28 degrees 51 minutes west, showed that we had gained 124 miles to the southwest, during the preceding twenty-four hours. The afternoon was not without incident. The bergs in the neighbourhood were very large, several being over two hundred feet high, and some of them were firmly aground, showing tide marks. A barrier berg bearing northwest appeared to be about twenty-five miles long. We pushed the ship against a small banded berg, from which Wordy secured several large lumps of biotite granite. While the insurance was being held slow ahead against the berg, a loud crack was heard, and the geologists had to scramble aboard at once. The bands on this berg were particularly well defined. They were due to Morianic action in the parent glacier. Later in the day the easterly wind increased to a gale. Fragments of flow drifted past at about two knots, and the pack to leeward began to break up fast. A low berg of shallow draught drove down into the grinding pack and smashing against two larger stranded bergs, pushed them off the bank. The three went away together, pell-mell. We took shelter under the lee of a large stranded berg. End of chapter Two, Part One.